Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. We will hear argument first this morning in case 21-454, Sackett versus EPA. Mr. Schiff, you're up first this year. The Supreme Court is back, playing to an almost full house. The justices kicked off the 2022-2023 term on October 3rd, allowing members of the public to attend oral arguments for the first time since March of 2020. The justices had a new colleague on the bench, and they heard some major cases. So joining me to look back at the court's first week is my editor, James Ramoser, and Katie Barlow, who's SCOTUS Blog's media editor and the chief legal correspondent for Fox 5 News in D.C. James and Katie, thanks for coming. Hi, Amy. Always happy to be here. This is my favorite part where we get to turn the microphone around on you. Well, it's, it's a discussion. It's a discussion. Um, and speaking of sort of discussions. Katie, you were at the oral arguments on Tuesday for the voting rights case. It was your first time at the court in a while because the court has been closed to most reporters. What was the atmosphere like? Well, the best news is they are now allowing day passes. So I can go back into the courtroom, which was wonderful. Uh, I actually... First of all, it was a long argument, two hours. I haven't sat in those rickety loud chairs in a while, um, and that took a while. But, um, you know, that was an incredibly important, interesting case. The justices seemed engaged. They were even talking to each other and laughing, um, making side comments, not constantly, but there was some engagement in the room. But I will say what I was surprised most about is I kept waiting for more people to fill the room, and there were definitely empty seats. The press area was generally full and the new members of the Supreme Court bar who were sworn in were that area was generally full. But the public seats, there was room. Was it like that on Monday? Yes. I mean, as you say, usually they kind of squish people in. I remember when I used to sit in the public seats sometimes and you would think that the pew was full and then they'd come along and you know, make everybody move over so that somebody else could sit down and people weren't packed as tightly where they were sitting. And then there were some empty benches. And so it's not clear exactly how many people they're letting in or what the method to the madness is in terms of seating. Um, One other thing that I noticed in the the courtroom and, and outside the courtroom is that they seem to have beefed up security a bit. There are, you know, restrictions of some of my colleagues tried to bring in water or sandwiches were not allowed to bring them in. And this was the first time that I could remember seeing people in the great hall, seeing police officers wearing, you know, what what looked like bulletproof vests. They were also giving very strict instructions to the members of the public before they walked into the courtroom, which I recall happening when I attended uh, as a member of the public, but they were you know, talking about what it would be like to be in jail in Washington, D.C., which is not where uh, they were suggesting anyone would want to be. And it was just a very intense monologue that was going to the members of the public before they walked in, I think, to kind of set the tone of uh, don't don't do anything. Yes. Yeah, there were a lot of protests outside the court. There was the leak, obviously. And I guess they're worried that people are going to come in and make trouble. Um, 
and that they might be trying to make trouble to appear on the live audio. James, you listened to some of the arguments which the court is now continuing to live stream even after they are have let members of the public back into the building for oral arguments. I will say as somebody who sat in the courtroom, it didn't really seem like anyone in the courtroom was conscious of the fact that there was live streaming. But James, I'd be curious to hear sort of your thoughts on somebody who was listening to it on the other end. Uh, first, I would say I'm really happy that the court continued its live audio streaming that it started during the pandemic. We were all getting a little nervous and we didn't hear anything from the court over the summer uh, on that score. So score one for you know uh, a minimum of transparency. The bar is low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, but you know, we'll 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 start low and and try to move it a little bit higher, you know, term by term. But listening to the audio, it 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 felt exactly the same as listening to all of the live streamed arguments throughout the pandemic when the court was closed to the public, with one extremely notable exception, which was that Justice Katanji Brown Jackson has replaced Stephen Breyer. And so as someone who listened to many, many live streamed arguments, you know, and before that listened to many recordings of arguments, you really got accustomed, you know, about a third of the way through the argument to hear Breyer jump in, interrupt an advocate and talk at length in an extremely meandering way and ask a circuitous question or pose a uh, sort of uh, comical and confusing, hypothetical that often didn't really go anywhere, but that we all found quite amusing, I, I, I must say. Unless you're the lawyer trying to answer it. Unless you're the lawyer trying to answer it. Although, although sometimes there was just no answer necessarily because necessary because Brian would, would, would talk himself, uh, you know, in, into oblivion. But, um, you know, so that uh, absence was notable, particularly because it was replaced by Jackson who has an extremely different style of questioning. She is crisp and extremely pointed in her questions. And she really came out of the gate hot and mixed it up with many of the advocates in the first week of arguments. And, um, you know, stylistically, uh, it's just like night and day between her uh, predecessor and former boss. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, a lot of the discussion of Jackson's arrival on the bench was the idea that she isn't going to change the ideological balance on the court and maybe she would, you know, and, and that still seems likely to be true. And maybe she'd bring a different perspective as someone who is a former public defender or someone who is a former district judge. And that may well prove to be true, but I don't think I had really anticipated how much of a change it would just mean for the dynamic and the tone on the court. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I will say while stylistically she was uh, quite unique and, and obviously very different from Breyer, I did notice during the first few arguments a substantive similarity in at least one respect to Breyer, which was that you know on the first day of oral arguments, the court heard two cases both involving complex statutes that the court has to interpret, the Clean Water Act and then like an arcane statute about money orders. And in both cases, Jackson asked a lot of questions that went to the purpose of the statute, Congress's 
goals in writing the statue. And that is vintage Breyer. Breyer was a purposivist. His whole mode of statutory interpretation was trying to figure out what the purpose that the legislature was doing. And Jackson was very much in that mold. And so you really saw some, some Breyer-esque sort of substance in her questioning. Uh, if if the if the style was was quite different and in my in my view much more effective. So let's move on and talk about one of those cases. Okay, the first case of the term, uh, Sackett versus EPA, and this is a long running dispute between the Sacketts, who are a couple who want to build a home on a lot that is one row of houses and a road separated from Priest Lake in Idaho, and they started working on the site so that they could begin construction, dumped you know, thousands of yards of gravel and sand, and then they get a notice from the EPA that says, uh, stop, because your property is a wetland. So the case has been going on for forever. It already made one trip to the Supreme Court on a procedural issue, and now it's back. At the court is going to be deciding what test courts should use to decide whether a wetland is covered by the Clean Water Act so that the EPA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers can regulate it. And the Sackett's argument is that the courts should look at whether or not there's what they call a continuous surface connection between the wetland and a larger body of what's known as navigable waters that are regulated by the EPA, uh, the EPA's argument is that it's enough if there's what they call a significant nexus between the two. So less, it doesn't have to be that water flows directly from the wetlands to the larger body of water. And this was, it seemed to me, there was like a little bit of a Goldilocks thing going on. You know, that some of the justices believe that perhaps this continuous surface connection test would be too restrictive. And talking about the purpose of the statute, the idea that you need to be able to regulate wetlands because the wetlands do flow into navigable waters and can affect their quality. But then once you get away from that test, some of the other justices seem to be concerned, like what tests do you use? And in particular, this doesn't give homeowners a lot of clarity about whether or not their lot is a wetland that is going to be regulated. So it's, you know, obviously there's the decision by at least four justices to take up this case, which always suggests that someone wants to rule in favor of the Sacketts. But there wasn't, I guess, maybe quite the certainty that I might have expected to see out of the oral argument. I'll walk farther out on the limb than, than Amy will. This is going to be a 6-3 decision curtailing the EPA's authority over wetlands. What specific arcane test the court decides, I frankly can't get all that excited about. This is a conservative court that is skeptical of environmental regulations. And just as we saw with the Clean Air Act last term, I don't expect unanimity in this case, and I don't expect a ruling in the EPA's favor. One man's opinion. You can come check this uh, next year when the opinion comes down. <laughs> but we never will remember when you're right. If you're wrong, we won't remember. Yeah, delete the, delete the tape if it's a, a 9-0 opinion in, in favor of uh, the agency. 
Exactly, exactly. So moving on to another case uh, in which I would expect the conservative majority to prevail, Merrill versus Milligan on Tuesday. This is a voting rights dispute involving allegations that the congressional plan that Alabama drew for its seats in the House of Representatives after they got the new data from the 2020 census violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits dis discriminatory election laws, voting practices, because the state could have and should have drawn another majority Black district. The state drew one majority Black district out of seven. The challengers in this case say that the state put a bunch of Black voters in that district and then broke up another group of Black voters, dividing them into several other districts when it could have, in fact, drawn a second one. So the state's argument in this case, much like a case that is going to be argued on October 31st, Halloween, it boils down to the idea that the Constitution is colorblind. It says that you know, we shouldn't be required to draw a majority-minority district just because we can and that, in fact, requiring us to do so would itself violate the Constitution. So they had like, sort of two basic arguments. One is that the challengers in this case must, in essence, prove that the state intended to discriminate, that the only explanation for the state's plan is uh, discrimination. And when even Justice Alito calls your argument far-reaching, it suggests that perhaps there might not be a, a majority for it, or they, they might decide to do something a little bit more, uh, a little less far reaching theoretically, but still really significant in terms of the Voting Rights Act. Um, their second argument is that the challengers have to show that a majority minority district that they would draw is reasonably compact, reasonably configured, which are sort of voting rights terms. And they need to be able to do this without considering race. And there were definitely some conservative justices who seemed to suggest that this line of, of thinking would work for them. It was a little bit hard because like, Justice Thomas didn't ask many questions. Uh, Justice Gorsuch did not ask any questions at all. So the Chief Justice was not particularly active. It's kind of hard to know where the justices are coming from. On the other hand, there were five justices earlier this year who were willing to allow the state to go ahead and use this plan, even though a lower court found that it likely violates the Voting Rights Act. Uh, one thing that, uh, you know, one other thing that was really interesting about this argument to me, there are a couple of things, and uh, maybe one of you can talk about Justice Jackson in this case. One thing, other sort of dynamic that was interesting to me was Justice Kagan, who is a very strategic questioner and uses frequently the arguments as an opportunity, not so much to ask questions, but to talk to her colleagues. And she has been speaking out on this question about legitimacy of the court. And there seemed to be at least one time where she was actually speaking more to the public maybe than her colleagues. She was talking about how under the, the court's existing voting rights laws, this was, and she called it a slam dunk. And so she seemed to be signaling like, if you're going to do something else, like 
it's going to be a major departure from our voting rights precedents. I too wondered if that was the beginning of what will be a term long drumbeat of if you are asking us to do this, then you are asking us to overturn, in this case, decades of reliance and precedent on what people understand the law and the protections of those laws to be. Also noteworthy, Kagan is a pointed questioner and often spends the bulk of her time on the question itself, whereas Justice Jackson in this case, and jury's still out because we only have a few examples, would set up her question with a lot of background and context and information before she got to it. Um, so two things, when I found the, the difference between the two of them interesting, but they also during this case seem to play off of each other. And it almost gave Kagan a second member of the bench who was as pointed uh, and as engaging with the advocate. I have a few other thoughts about Justice Jackson and her questioning during this case, but I thought they seemed to almost encourage each other a little bit. And there was almost a sharing back and forth for a moment uh, with uh, Alabama's lawyer, where the two of them were were working with each other to get to the answer that they were trying to get to. And I found that interesting. I wonder if that is a dynamic between the two of them, especially given Kagan's history um, that we'll see in the future. I don't know, James, if if you could hear that in the same way. Oh, absolutely. That came across that, that came across to me as well, listening to the arguments. I mean, I've long said that the best questioners on the Supreme Court are Alito and Kagan. And I thought that in the first week of oral arguments, Jackson was just as effective as the two of them. This is not a comment on the substance of their views or the, the points they're trying to make in their questions, but just in terms of how they frame them, how they pin down advocates, how they use follow-up questions, and how they use the format to speak both to the public and to the other justices about the case. I think the most notable thing that you heard from Jackson in particular during the Alabama case was her extended discussion about the notion, like you said, Amy, that Alabama is putting forward that the Constitution, in particular the 14th and 15th Amendments, are colorblind. And very forcefully, Jackson pushed back against that idea and explained that these are very much affirmative action amendments. They were intended to lift up former slaves and bring them into the status of full equal citizens. They were not colorblind amendments. Uh, and th this is a, a version of, of originalism, frankly, mm -hmm. that we have not heard on the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I can't remember ever hearing any justice make those points about the Reconstruction Amendments uh, as as forcefully as as uh, Justice Jackson did on Tuesday. We, we you know we we will see <laughs> whether whether these you know, th those those ideas just, you know, are, are end up just in, in, a, in a forceful descent, you know, or, or what. But um, but it was, it was quite striking. I, too, Katie, definitely had the sense that the, that those two justices, Kagan and Jackson, were, were sort of tag teaming. And for people who have not been in the courtroom yet this term, they sit near each other, too. You know, Justice 
Jackson is on the far right side of the bench, the sort of seat reserved for the newest justice. And mm. then sort of the way they move around, Justice Kavanaugh is the only person between Justice Kagan and Justice Jackson. I, ha- I hadn't even thought of that. That's quite interesting. But I'll also say that, that Justice Jackson, I don't know which sport to use as the analogy here, perhaps basketball, but Justice Jackson used and had an energy dynamic with a number of the other justices. Of course, she and Kagan were going back and forth for a while, but then there was a moment where she and Justice Alito were going back and forth with the advocate where it felt very much like a ping pong ball was going from her to the advocate up to Alito back to her. Uh, And then there were, I think, two different moments during the oral argument where she built on Justice Barrett's question, one where she said, I'm so glad Justice Barrett asked that. That helps me frame this one. But then another time it was, well, Justice Barrett asked, why shouldn't we do this with this was about a computer generated map? Uh, And she said, but my question is actually the opposite. Why should we in the first place? Am I right or is Justice Barrett right? And of course, that was a lighthearted moment in the courtroom because that's a very pointed question to ask. But she used multiple justices as a sounding board almost or or the questions that they were asking to inform where she was going next and it, she was the point guard almost it, it felt very much like she had the ball for much of that discussion yes it was it was a really interesting argument to listen to and we had so much time to listen to it because it was uh two hours long yeah <laughs> I, don't, I, I genuinely don't know how the justices do it because we all left for the most part after the Alabama voting rights argument. They still had another argument. Well, I believe they have cushions, coffee, and water. <laughs> you can't have too much coffee and water, though. Like, fair know, enough. You fair have enough. A different set of problems. <laughs> one other case I wanted to talk about briefly is one of the newest cases on the court's docket. The court on Monday added nine new cases to its docket for this term. And one of them probably soaked up most of the attention with good reason. It's a case called Gonzalez versus Google involving the scope of immunity for internet platforms for content published by others. And the the case was brought by the family of a young American woman who was killed by ISIS in a terrorist attack in Paris. And the argument is that Google, which owns YouTube, it was aiding and abetting terrorism. So they brought the lawsuit under the Anti-Terrorism Act by having its algorithms recommend, you know, terrorist content. And so the question is whether Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which generally protects internet service platforms from this content published by others um, applies when we're talking about algorithms that target users and recommend someone else's content. Um, So it's a really interesting question. The other reason that it, it kind of fascinates me is because a couple of years ago, Justice Thomas, in a statement regarding the denial of certiorari in another case under Section 230, said you know, we should take up this question of the scope of the immunity provided by Section 230. And nobody else joined that statement. 
Um, and but like this seems like an example of like as my kids would say, like Justice Thomas sort of manifesting it, like uh, sort of willing it into the willing the issue into existence. I couldn't agree more. I recently wrote a piece in which I said that the Supreme Court should be thought of as the Clarence Thomas Court because a lot of the solo opinions he has written over his early, over the early and middle parts of his career uh, are starting to garner five or six votes in the Supreme Court. Uh, I wrote this before the court decided to take up the Google case and then boom, like clockwork, you know, the court granted cert in that case two years after Clarence Thomas was the lone justice to, to call for them to take up that exact issue. You know, I really think that the current composition of the court, Thomas is really um, ascendant and is very much an intellectual leader of the conservative majority in, in, in many ways. And I think he's starting to realize that he has opportunities to memorialize a lot of his priorities and majority opinions in ways that he had in, in the earlier parts of his career. Yeah, and you know, I guess this is why you know, despite the assurances in the majority opinion in Dobbs about how this doesn't affect anything else, you know, people are concerned about other rights that sort of fall under the right to privacy, whether you're talking about the right to contraception, the right to same-sex marriage, the right to same-sex intimacy. Yeah, and of course, Thomas, you know, name-checked all of those rights in a solo concurrence in Dobbs. Right. And, you know, I guess time will tell whether that solo concurrence will be one of the solo Thomas opinions that eventually evolves, uh, you know, into a, a majority. But as for the the Google case, the Gonzales v. Google case, I, I think this is going to be a real blockbuster with the potential to totally transform the way that tech companies do business. And I think that the ramifications of, of weakening 230 are, are really quite, unknown um, because they've been in place essentially for the entire modern period that the internet has existed. And so we don't know what the world will look like if social media companies like Twitter and Facebook and Google could be held liable for third party statements posted on their, on their, on their sites. And um, so I think the justices will really need to be very careful in, in how they approach this case. Uh, interestingly, uh, you know, the, the political balance is a little bit more confusing than usual here because both the left and the right have criticized Section 230 for, for very different reasons. And, and so this is going to be a very interesting case to watch. I agree, James, on the political point and the, the folks who try and read where the where it's going to go from the political arguments. I think it will be a bit more complex here. But also to your point about the social media companies, I'm looking forward to seeing what they say and, and what's filed in amicus briefs and the legal firepower that they bring to this case. Because I know that some social media and media companies agree that Section 230 can be reformed. And they all have thoughts on exactly how that should be. But there will also be, you know, slippery slope, open the door to infinite liability arguments um, that are made with very expensive, high powered lawyers uh, in Washington, New York and on the West Coast, I imagine, uh, throughout the case. So I I'm just interested to see the players and the people who will contribute to the cases as uh, amicus or, you know, talk about the case. There's to your point, it's going to be a very interesting one that I think will have um, a lot of us talking. 
And that case has not been scheduled yet for argument, but in all likelihood will be in January. So we can come back and talk about it then. Katie Barlow, James Ramoser, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Amy. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. This season, we want to hear from you. Send us your questions about the Supreme Court at feedback at scotusblog.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 202-596-2906. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. SCOTUS Talk is produced and edited by Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, James Ramoser, and Katie Barlow.